You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Um, it's good to be here. I'm excited. Um, this is a momentous occasion uh, for our YouTube crowd because um, this is quite possibly the last episode where the TV trays are going to be featured. Um, I mentioned a couple episodes ago that I was going to get uh, lumber to build a desk for all of our uh, studio stuff, have us a nice workspace over here. Um, so I'm I'm super excited about that. So next time, uh, next time you tune in on YouTube, you'll probably see uh, the desk that I was able to build. The and fruits of your labor. Yeah, I'm I'm finishing up the construction of that today. I built the top. Uh, I've, I've got all of most of my cuts done. I still have to put the legs on it. Then of course sand and stain it, um, and then we should be rolling. So Look I'm at you I'm being excited. All carpentry or. Is that word doing all your carpentry work? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I I'm not like a great carpenter. As long as everything's on a ninety degree angle, I'm pretty good. <laughs> um, I can I can glue and and screw stuff together. So that's <laughs> well, that's ninety percent of it right there. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, but I I love it. Uh, it's it's coming together great. It's uh it's poplar. It's got a great grain, and I think once we get the stain on it, it's just gonna pop right out it's gonna look i think it's gonna look really good i it's not perfect um but i've been enjoying it so and and, and I, I like woodworking like i'm not fantastic at it but i i love doing it so um it's no it's a lot of fun i've i've got to do some of it when i converted my bus i it's like oh yeah this is actually something that's doable it's not mm -hmm. some great foreign mystery it's 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 a puzzle <laughs> and it's yeah. a useful puzzle yeah and it is that that's kind of how i i see it everything and like I said, there's, there are things that if I do ever build another one, I will do them differently, but I would first have to have a need for said desk. So, um, <laughs> I think this one is going to do all the work, um, that we need it to do. And I, well, I can't wait for unveiling it. So sorry, but I just have to like, <laughs> this well, is so just maybe something I'll I'm be really up there. About. Yeah. And, and maybe hopefully, I'll be yeah. in studio for yeah, that ho one. <laughs> hopefully you'll be here next time. Um, because that's going to be, uh, well, Sierra, that'll be five episodes uh, as far as airing. So there's plenty of time for you to get up here and, and do some recording. Yeah, just need to get time to write up some more notes. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I'll have new books. Yay! So, yeah. but yeah, this is going to be an interesting episode because we're actually going to step away from the text for a little bit, and we're going to look at some some ancient Near Eastern context for what's happening with David, and. I am really, really excited. I, I did not expect to find as much information on this as I did. And I, I, I literally had to cut myself off at a certain point because this is just a really well-researched part of the ancient Near Eastern world. And we've got so many great archaeological finds to, to verify and confirm different speculations. And so I wanted to to bring this in because I think it's going to help uh, help us understand as we move forward. Because normally I would have, you know, done this as a wrap up episode, 
but I, I think that we need it as the story progresses. So okay. I am so, yeah, that this is fascinating. And I've already actually sent it to uh, TJ in the paddle store because he's working on a project and I thought he'd find it useful and he was totally excited about it too. So I think everybody's going to enjoy it. But this, you didn't send it to me. Well, I know you don't get a chance to read. You've got hoodlums running around your house. So oh, actually, I, mean... I, I figured out I figured out a way around some of this. Uh, you cut paste it into an email, send it to my uh, my work address, and then I can have Cortana read it to me. Oh, that's a good idea. Okay. Well, we will be getting the links out there for anybody who wants to read this. Most of this is coming from a paper written by John Curtis Franklin. Uh, he wrote this paper for the Center of Hellenic. Hellenic, sorry, Hellenic, I started to say Hellenistic, but Hellenic studies at Harvard. So, you know, it, it's okay. a good, solid source. This was published in 2006. You can look it up online. It, it's available for anyone who wants to read. It's over 500 pages long, so it's not a light read. Okay. It's something you're going to spend some time on. And basically what he's doing, uh, the, the title of it is, uh, I hope I'm going to pronounce this correctly, is Kinross, The Divine Liar. Again, L-Y-R-E, not a politician. Um, Franklin traces the use of the lyre from the earliest known references in Mesopotamia all the way to its arrival in Greece and its associations with the god Apollo. Now, I, I, I limited myself to those things that were written before the time of David and contemporary with the time of David. Yeah, so, um, because, I mean, we get into the stuff with Apollo, I mean, because we all know he, well, we all, I say we all know, but it's popularly <laughs> known that you know, he's, he is the god of music and prophecy. Yeah. And, and so there's some really great things to go into there. And, and we may pull some of that in later at a different date. But, you know, we're just getting started with David. So I figured, you know, let's just start at the beginning and, and kind of stick to that with this. And so when I say we're starting at the beginning, I mean, we're talking from 33 to 2900 BCE. And remember, when you're talking BCE, the numbers go backwards. So right. the bigger the number, the older it is. And so this is where, where we really begin, and we start to find um, these that instruments, musical instruments, are deposited in sacred sites like temples, and they, they are considered to be sacred, them, sacred themselves. Mm -hmm. And around 2600 BCE, we began to find instruments included in God lists. Now, um, these lists would include not only the names of gods and goddesses, they would con, uh, include divinized objects. So you would have like crowns and jewelry and temple foundation pegs, the doors of the temple and, you know, any potteries or vessels that were that were used. But also we're finding musical instruments, specifically the lyre uh, included in this. And when it, these objects are included in this list, they contain what's known as a divine determinative determinative. And this is a word that would include the name of the God that these objects were being used in service of. And we, and we mm. find this in the Bible. So, you know, like with Bethel, that, that's a place. And so Beth-el, house of El, or Babel, the gate of God. And, you know, we've got so many names in the, in the Bible of individuals that include, you know, a descriptor of God, you know, Daniel, Michael. All the ones that begin with L has God's name at the end. All the ones that have the Yah, the the like Yeshua, Yahshua. Um, I'm saying that wrong, but to give you an idea, mm -hmm. those include Yahweh. So 
they were they were included these musical instruments were included with this divine determinative ah came and talk today <laughs> it's, okay. it's to let you it's to let you know that that these items aren't just being used by the gods but they actually in a lot of ways are are functioning as a god and and they would receive the same kind of treatments they would be dressed they would have jewelry put on them they would be they would receive sacrifices you know food sacrifices fruit oil spices all of these things were done for the instrument not just for the god that that's okay so it's it's really funny that you know because i'm a guitar player and you're talking about they're they're dressed up and they're they're ornate i mean i i'll i'll send you some i'll i'll try to remember to put some links in the show notes to some really cool looking fancy guitars um that's that's what i'm thinking of like paul reed smith dragons and and martin makes a, a every year they make i think every year they make this one-off or limited edition martin that's just basically covered in abalone and mother of pearl everywhere and that like when you're talking about them being decorated i thought of that and you were talking about uh, food and and oils being <laughs> brought to them, and, and mm -hmm. then I was thinking, I was thinking, you know, we actually uh, guitars. That's part of maintaining them is oiling the fretboard, mm -hmm. and so that was kind of like that's kind of funny, you know. It's like how much of that, how much of that was maintenance that they just kind of dressed up in like religious well, garb. And see, that's that's a point I wouldn't have thought of because you know I'm not a musician. Uh, you got all that ability. But but no, that that's a really good point because I actually was thinking of, um, and it kills me because I can't remember this guy's name. I I was just it just occurred to me, you know, the the tradition of having other musicians, very skilled musicians, sign your guitar, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so you know this is very well known in in especially country music, yep. and. So you know, the idea that you know you're imparting something to the instrument, I, that may be part of just our human makeup, and so we're going to talk some more about that because I mean, this this goes way back. And one of the things about the these instruments that were were used this way, they were considered instantiations. How's that for a great word? Instantiations. Uh, this is concrete evidence or proof that the divine world interacted with humanity, and mm -hmm. it's something that that manifest a God's presence so powerfully and so tangibly that the item itself is viewed as an extension of the God. And so we, we kind of see hints of this in the biblical text. Uh, we see that with the bronze serpent mm -hmm. where it becomes worshiped. We see this also with the Ark of the Covenant. And so, you know, how it's used as kind of a talisman because that's going to bring God's presence. and Basically, for all practical purposes, these, these instruments that were included in these ancient lists and in these ancient um, depositories, they they functioned as a god. And it's really interesting because this is throughout all of the A&E culture, and they, they really inhabit this unique space within worship. And this is best demonstrated, I think, in the construction ritual. And basically, when they would get ready to to construct an instrument, the, the priest would begin by offering sacrifices and make blessings because this instrument is going to be used in the service of a god. And so they want to secure that god's goodwill mm -hmm. and make sure that the god is 
going to be with them as they create this instrument because I can only imagine what it would be like to you know build a sophisticated instrument without all the tools and technology that we have today and because I mean so many of the the mass manufacturers today they rely on computers to to make these precise cuts oh yeah and so oh yeah I, I I spoke to one of the the Gibson reps and we were because you know they spend a lot of time in the factories and one of the things that he said was, you know, people want a handmade, an a handmade instrument. They want to know the quality and craftsmanship is there. But they're, they, they said, we did go to some places where it makes sense to use the CNC machine to cut out. He's like, because we've definitely thrown away fewer necks since we started doing that. Because you, you have to get that joint to fit just right. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you don't have a very good guitar. And see, this is the reason why I'm glad I'm having this conversation with you, because like all of this stuff, I knew you would like get immediately. Because... Yeah. yeah. And I realize I'm kind of nerding out uh, <laughs> about guitars specifically, but this is it's what I do. It's I mean, got, of course, the Martin and the Marshall over here and, you know. <laughs> well, I knew you loved Mickey whenever you sold your guitar to help pay for the wedding and stuff. So, <laughs> well, uh, that wasn't a, that. Well, that was to pay for some uh, just to go see your ones but that yeah <laughs> so yeah so yeah when you when you're willing to give it up for whatever reason related to her i mean that's a huge statement yeah but yeah the, these these guitars are sorry now you got me saying guitar these instruments uh you know part of the reason why the sacrifices were offered too is because these were specifically going to be used in service of the gods uh, there's, they were supposed to subdue and, and soothe these angry gods. And, and they're also supposed to be used in communication with the gods. And now when the sacrifices were made, often parts of the animal sacrificed became a part of the instrument. And so there's a certain duality in how the, the instrument is viewed because it belongs to both the world of the living and also the world of the dead. Mm -hmm. uh, a good example of this would be, you know, if you kill a bull to make a drum, now its skin becomes part of the drum, but then the heartbeat of the bull is being is seen as still being inside the drum. It still inhabits the drum. So the bull's right. not gone. It, it's just been transformed into a useful item for worship. Yeah, and, it, and that would also make sense too. Like if you know if the drum had breaks, then then you can't use then it's not effective anymore and then you would say that well the the beat of that heart has left right um, so that that would definitely it, make sense the instrument essentially died and yeah. so now it has to be replaced yeah that's that would probably very much be in line with her thinking but this this also made this the perfect means for the living to communicate with the dead and the dead to communicate with the living because it inhabited both spaces in their perspective hmm. and it, it's it, it really, I mean, when I say this is fascinating, this is this is where I geek out. So, I, but we have this this ancient document. It's the uh, building of Najirazu's house by Gudea of Lagash, and it was written somewhere around between twenty one forty nine to twenty one twenty four. Yeah, and I'm and sure everyone has a copy of that. Uh, you know, oh, just laying sorry. around. <laughs> like, like sometimes when we read some of this, some of the stuff you reference, I'm like, you know, everyone read that in like Kinder, right? <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, I, I'm going to bring forward the the pertinent parts for our conversation. Um, 
Nigiris was a Mesopotamian god, and he's also known as Ninurta. So if you're doing any research in ancient Mesopotamian gods, you might know him by that name. And some people consider him to be the inspiration for Nimrod in, in Genesis 10. Uh, so just I'm just throwing that out there, so if you want to do a little more research. Gedea mm -hmm. was a Sumerian king. Um, he lived in Lagash, a Sumerian city. And there's a, this highly detailed account of Gedea's building of Nigerisu's temple. And at the end, the, the climax of the story is when Nigerisu arrives. And he arrives with this royal retinue that's you know, made up of divine beings. And whenever it's described, there's actually this description of these divine beings being elements of the temple, like, you know, the foundation pegs and the doors and, and the ceremonial bowls and all of those things. Mm -hmm. But one of the beings that comes with him is Umsamgal Kalama. And he's a lesser deity, so he's, he's not, you know, one of the big leagues, but, but he arrives with Nijirisu, and he is the god of the Balong. And he, uh, Belong is a musical instrument. And he serves as the musical director of the temple. How and his duty, B A L A N G. Belong. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is so, what I'm not heard of, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, hang in there because you, you'll, you'll know what it is here in a moment. His duties are listed as soothing the heart soothing the spirits, drying the weeping eyes, and banishing the mourning from, from, heart, from the heart, grief from the heart. And, and his name means to return and send. And it, so it's got this implication of asking and answering, of advising, and, and just being an all-around uh, counselor. And in Samaria, the belief was that the belong merely echoed the message of the gods. The, the instrument was activated by the musician. But it was really the God who played the instrument. So all human agency is pretty much denied. Uh, the, the person has no significance in, in this role. It's all about the instrument. And so when you, you look at this kind of together and you realize that kings embody gods and gods relied on music to be soothed, now, now it makes sense that kings would replicate this in their royal courts, that they would also want musicians to soothe their hearts. And so it, it, you're, we can start to see some of the parallels that was going on in this Mesopotamian text with David and Saul. Yeah. Now, so we're going to move forward a little bit. And this is uh, 2029 to 1982, again, BCE. And this is Shulgi, king of Ur. Now, he was known for many civic reforms that, that occurred during his lifetime. Uh, there's also a tale about him running 100 miles in a day, and this is why he was such a great king. Hmm. What, you know, how that makes you a great king, I don't know, but evidently it was important back then. Uh, he is also noted as an accomplished lover to the goddess Inanna. So, um, you know, very connected with that idea of kings being associated with divine uh, beings mm -hmm. and having that intimate contact, literally. Uh, it, it's said that he exhibited his divine perfection. That's a quote, divine perfection through his command of music. He is um, celebrated for, for developing a musical culture during his time, and he supported it directly. He, he gave money to schools and to um, have music taught and to, to build instruments. And he, he said this of himself. I, I love this because 
you want to talk about, you know, humility. <laughs> this guy was filled with it. My diviner watches in amazement like an idiot. That, that's what he says <laughs> of his diviner. Who's his diviner? His diviner's the guy who plays the instrument to, to speak on behalf of the gods. So we're, we're starting, again, we're seeing that this reinforced imagery of diviners, of being able to speak to God, of, um, of kings being participants within the music culture. And we find in Samaria that the word for this instrument is built on a root. Uh, and if we were transl to transliterate it, and remember transliterations where you take the letters from one language and replace them with the letters from another language that sound the same. So if we took the Sumerian language and put them in English, it would be K-N-R. In Hebrew, this is pronounced Kenor, and it appears 40 times in the Old Testament. And we find it also in the Apocrypha. We find it in Dead Sea Scrolls. We find it in rabbinic literature. Uh, it's mentioned in the context of Psalms. Uh, it's mentioned in royal praise poetry, triumphal processions, processions uh, exorcism, ecstatic prophecy, and laments. And so we see this not just within biblical writings. We also see this in other cultures, this, this kenor showing up in the same context in Mesopotamia, in, in, in Cana, uh, Sumerian, Ugaritic, all of these uh, cultures shared this together. And yeah. the, the Bible acknowledges that the Kenor is, it, it predates the flood actually, uh, and it was invented outside of the covenant community. Matter of fact, the Bible says that it was invented in Genesis 4.21 by Jubal. Now Jubal's the seventh generation from Adam. And it says that he was the father of all who played the lyre, the canor, and the pipe. In that same chapter, we find Jabal, who's the full brother to Jubal, who's the father of all who lived in tents and have livestock. We also find Tubal, Tubal Cain, which is Jubal's half-brother. He's the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And we have Nama, who is Jubal's half-sister, full sister to Tubal Cain. And we're going to come back to her in a minute. But these guys were the seventh generation from Adam through Cain. So to give some context to that, Enoch is the seventh generation through Seth. So we're looking at the same time period here. And, 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 I, would, the, and I do want to point out there's, there is actually, I, I don't know if you're going to mention this, but I know that there, there have been places that use that, that genealogy that they were descendants of Cain to mm -hmm. talk about how certain instruments are evil. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I don't know if you're going to talk about that. Yeah. I didn't know if you're going to talk about that, but I, that's, it's false. It's just a ridiculous argument. <laughs> it really is. And, and uh, I, I was not planning on going that because I did not think about that, but I know you've been more in the middle of that discussion than I have. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, you, I mean, that was, that was a, dis a discussion that, and arguments that I've had over the years with different people <laughs> and, and just trying to, to work out like, okay, what is acceptable in worship and, and, and a I, piano and an organ. That's it. Yeah. And you, and don't <laughs> open the piano to let everyone see there's strings in it. You know, that's <laughs> right. just scandalous. Or that you, or that you plug the organ in. Uh, yeah, exactly. So. Well, not all, well, not all of them. I mean, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, just most of them today. So, yeah, but yeah, I, ones, which I'm sure organists really appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, but the, there, yes, the the thing is, the Bible never tries to hide that this is an instrument that came from an outside culture. That this is not part of. Um, you know, Israel as a nation or even, you know, through the line of Abraham or any of that. It, but what the significance of this particular text in, in Genesis 4 is we see this connection between music, metallurgy, and um, nomadic shepherds. Uh, all three of those things are put together as being part of the same family legacy. And, and it's really interesting because we have this, this Egyptian tomb painting that depict, depicts this nomadic family with livestock and with metalworking tools and, and the lyre specifically. And so this has led to some speculation that this is an Egyptian depiction of the descendants of Cain traveling to Egypt. So now I said we were going to come back to Nema. Nema, according to rabbinic lit, again, rabbinic, rabbinic lit is not part of the Bible. This is tradition outside. But sometimes it helps um, kind of paint a fuller picture and kind of give some ideas of what some thought processes were. Now, she was supposed to be a famed drum player. And it was said that she used her musical skills to subdue and seduce demons, which has some really impl interesting comp uh, implications when you move to Genesis 6. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> and we, I'm not going to go off into that. Because it is just traditions, but I do think it's just interesting to note. Now, what we do want to point out here is that the lyre or the canor is not a harp. And I know that that's very popular, um, you know, imagery for David that he, he played the harp. And so somehow the harp is a, you know, more holy instrument. It's what we're going to be playing in, in, in heaven, you know, when we get our wings and our white robe, all of which is false. I'm being sarcastic. But um, the, the Septuagint does take the time to make the distinction whenever it translates this Hebrew word. It uses the, the Greek word for lyre, not for a harp. And, and the Greek was very specific because we even have different kinds of lyres. There's an Eastern uh, lyre and there's a Western lyre. Uh, the Eastern has a flat resonator at the bottom and the Western has a round resonator at the bo bottom. And uh, the dividing line for that was Cyprus which I'm sure Becca could give us some really great insights on why that might be important, but uh, I'm not that person. Mm -hmm. So uh, in, in Qumran, we find that the lyre is used symbolically and it's described as being 10 stringed. And that's to represent 10 tactical groups who are engaged in war. This is specifically found in the war scroll. Now, David would have played a seven-string lyre. At that point in time, we know that's how it was constructed. And we find from rabbinic lit that they, they make a specific note that an eighth string was added during the second temple um, period. Now, you probably know why an eighth string would be important uh, for, for playing, where I don't. But their reasoning was that was to anticipate the coming of the Messiah. And we know that this is accurate because the, um, the, there's Greek writings that also make the note that it was during that same time period that the eighth string became standard on the lyre rather than, than seven strings being used. So 
yeah and it's like well there's eight notes to an octave you know that's kind of i mean it, it, to me it makes sense but well I, I mean in in a lot of western european music you're going to have that but i i don't know if that's far enough to east where they're doing more of the microtonal stuff or not um i would have to do more research on the, the music specifically so yeah you just totally lost me with that okay so <laughs> well i mean we we divide we divide our i mean in the West, we divide the, the frequencies into like 12 notes with, with the sharps and flats. But a scale will have, generally you'll play the eight notes that go together. And so um, in other countries, there's actually uh, other types of music. You'll actually use like what we would call them uh, quarter step notes, like between like uh, between like F and F sharp. There would be a, another note in there. So we, we don't use them in Western music, um, but other places do. So that's uh, okay. my, my music nerdery. So go ahead. Well, yeah, it's like me picking apart Hebrew. Uh, so, yeah. So, okay. So there's some music background for you. But um, it, it's, it, all this is so weird how it all plays together and that, that actually the, the string number would have a symbolic significance, even in Judaism, I think is interesting. But... The the lyre, we, we, we found a lyre back in the city of Elba. This is located in modern-day uh, Syria, and it's from around the 2400 BCE period. So that's about 1,500 years before David or 500 years before the patriarchs, Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. And we know from other findings at Elba that the city had contact with so many other cities and so many countries. They were part of a major, several major trade routes, actually. And it basically confirms that the invention of the lyre is very ancient and it's very widespread throughout the ancient world. So the the first known mention of the lyre or the kinor by that title is a, in a Sumerian document and from Elba. And it specifies that the belong that we spoke of earlier is actually the same instrument. So we, we know that we can trace the lyre farther back than we have the word, the, you know, lyre or canor. But the instrument itself actually existed way back when. And yeah. so, yeah, so we can, we can be comfortable in saying that when the, when the Bible talks about a lyre or a canor, they are referring to the same instrument that we found in those Mesopotamian and, and Sumerian stories that I, I just brought up. Now, hmm. belong music um, was important to coronating the king. It, it served as an, uh, an accompaniment to the offerings made to the divinized shades. Now, if you if you recognize that word shades, it's because in Hebrew, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like, oh, divinized shade, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it, it, this is royal um, members of the royal household who have died. And um, matter of fact, Dr. Vance, uh, I, I saw a post from him recently on Facebook where he said that he would never translate that word Rephaim as shades because it's, it's just not it doesn't capture the true meaning of the, of the, the dead royalty, the dead kings and queens. But. Mm -hmm. They would sing this song, and uh, we have part of it preserved. We actually know what the song, was, um, what the words were. We may not know what the tune was, but um, this dates all the way back to 2800 BCE. And so, to give you some context for that time period, 
This is when Europeans have figured out that it's easier for things to be transported with wheels than any other way. Yeah. Uh, Sumerians have developed cuneiform at this point, which is why we have a record of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Ur, uh, the city of Ur from the Bible, has started working in metal. And this is about the same time that Abraham would have been packing up to leave. So it's also during this time we start seeing even more references. This is the Amorite age. Uh, Mari, which is a Syrian city, was conquered by the Amorites. And later it's going to be conquered by Hammurabi. So if you remember your high school history lessons, uh, there's a place to tie into that. And they record these royal gift exchanges. Uh, and these royal gifts exchanged would include musicians and their instruments. And um, in Aleppo, we have this record of a king receiving specifically Benjaminite musicians. And it hmm. describes the the care and the decoration of all of the, the instruments. You get a real descriptive uh, writing in there on the instruments and and why they needed to be kept in good condition and all this stuff where the people are pretty much ignored. The, the people are, are basically insignificant, but well, I mean, if you're you're royalty, you probably know like, or have people who know how to care and feed and water a musician, right? (laughs) You would hope (laughs) the the instrument's going to be a little more unique. (laughs) Well, and, and that's the thing, the, the, the player, the musician themselves, I mean, they just activated the, the instrument. That's That was all they did. The, they did not play the instrument in this viewpoint. They only um, called the God to, to start, so the God could start speaking through it. And so, you know, why put any high value on the human being if you have the instrument that just needs to be activated? Mm-hmm. Um, we also, about the same time period, start seeing records of what are known as lyre girls or Kenor girls. Um, they're, they're women who are known for their musical ability. They're, they're, they're all across the, the ancient Near East. They're from Egypt to Phoenicia. Uh, we find mention of them. Matter of fact, mm-hmm. Isaiah 23, 16. Uh, this is his prophecy about Tyre. He says, take a harp, a Kenor or a lyre is actually the harp's bad translation. Go to the city, O forgotten prostitute, make sweet melodies, sing many songs that you may be remembered. So mm-hmm. we have a biblical reference to, to these um, individuals here. And the Amorites were known for their musical ability. And they moved into Mesopotamia about the, the third millennia. By the second millennia, they were ruling everything. And, you know, we, we've talked about the Amorites in previous episodes. But the Amorite kings specifically were praised for their musical ability. And they used, um, the Amorites used music as kind of propaganda, political propaganda to placate the Mesopotamians and, and really legitimize their claim to rule. And yeah, aren't you glad they do that kind of thing anymore? Uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it, they, they, were, they were experts at it. And it's really fun to kind of see how the Amorites went from these, you know, invading barbarians that were crude and, and not well-respected to somebody worthy of rule in just a very short space of time speaking, you know, you know, speaking from this time period. And we also have these echoes in the Amorite community that go back to Genesis and Genesis four, where we have nomadic wanderers, 
who were good with metalwork because the Amorites were good with metalwork and, mm. and musicians. And so the Amorite influence uh, was really felt in, in the king list. And the king list began to be recorded in songs. And so you wouldn't just, you know, memorize and, you know, and Joe beget Bob and Bob beget George. You know, you, you would sing them. Uh, and so that's the way you would remember who these great kings were. And so the, it's interesting that the Amorites used this music to placate the Mesopotamians, solidify their claim to the throne. But then when, um, when Hammurabi comes in and conquers the, the Amorites, then he actually does the same thing. He, he uses music, and because he's using music and is able to, to recount his history and connect himself with this great tradition, he legitimizes his claim at hmm. that point in time. Oh, and so, I mean, already the, the evidence is overwhelming that royalty and authority is very bound up in this idea of musical talent and musical gifting. And he, Hammurabi, Hammurabi actually uh, commemorates, he, he celebrates and honors the Amorite kings in his hymns, which we, we still have when, um, in a dedication to the Temple of Nurgle, which is in Babylon. So this is going to play into our story of, of David and Saul. And the, the fact that music is being played, it, it's not just accompaniment music. You know, this isn't music. Right. You know, it, God is <laughs> actually participating, whatever God they're, they're praying to their God is actually participating in the event. And so to have the God there and offer their blessing in beautiful music was evident that it, this, this king deserved to have this position. Mm -hmm. So in the Ugaritic, we have the Baal songs. And these are sang to Baal by Anat, and she is accompanied by a lyre. That's what she plays. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we've got several kings commemorated, several heroes, but the kings specifically are remembered as having been, or they're remembered because they're still playing their lyre in the afterlife. It's somewhere in whatever underworld that religion has a concept of, they, they are still actively engaged in, in making music. And when the king would die, the music of the lyre would be silenced and would not return to the city until a new king was enthroned. Hmm. And so, yeah. And Isaiah 49, uh, 14, 9 through 11, listen to what he writes. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades. Again, bad translation. That's Rephaim to greet you. All who were leaders on the earth, it raises from their thrones. All who were kings of the nations, all of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we are. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to shield the sound of your harps, lyre, canor. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. So Isaiah is mocking in that passage, the king of Babylon, the same place that we were just talking about where the kings were celebrated for continuing to play after they had died. Hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, isn't that, I mean, that's a great connection. I was just so thrilled and I, he is, it's Isaiah coming head to head with an inscription we have from this temple of Nurgle 
uh, yeah. where Hammurabi has has celebrated his triumph over the Amorites who worshipped these divinized shades or Raphaim. So now in the Ugaritic, the the kings are known as ne Naim. Naim. I'm sorry, it's it's a really weird word. Sometimes the way they connect vowels are hard to say, but that word specifically actually shows up in the Bible. It's in 2 Samuel 23, 1. And David refers to himself by this title. So in 23, 1, this is what he says. Now, now these are the last words. The Naim, actually, I think is how it's pronounced. Naim. Okay. Okay. And so, yeah, he says, now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who is raised on high, anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, the ESV translates that word here as sweet, but it's the same word. It's that Naim, and it's actually the same root word as Nama. Remember back in Genesis 4, the sister of Jubal and Jabal and Tubal-Cain. So mm -hmm. David specifically connects his ability as a musician to have God's words put on his tongue and he's citing his ability as one of the reasons why he's king and he continues his song you know he reaffirms that his royal line is secured through the covenant between god and david as evidenced through david's musical ability and you know he's affirming god's presence because he can make these songs and he's reflecting a very well-known theological principle that all of the ancient world would have understood and you know we we have some very obvious parallels with the Ugaritic. Um, the the styles of the songs for one are are undistinguishable. If you compare the Ugaritic and, and um, David's Psalms, that they're going to line up uh, kind of in subject matter, in, in tone, in, in rhythm. So you would not be able to tell one from the other unless you're looking specifically at what the words are saying and which God they're appealing to. Uh, we have that connection between the kings and the musical guild, uh, guilds. Uh, David, he established musical guilds. He sponsored them. Uh, he he gave them um, he he gave them the money to be supported. But he also he constructed musical instruments himself. We have that in First Chronicles twenty three five and Amos six five, where the construction of instruments is actually attributed to David. Now, little short note here. Evidently, some of the people have read this passage as meaning that David invented these instruments. He, he, he didn't invent them. He adapted them and took them from these pagan settings and, and brought them very much into the worship of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. And he also, he instructed the priest on how to pray, uh, how to play, sorry. And, and Solomon is known as a musician who inherits David's ability. And this is one of the things that the, the next king would inherit that ability. This is the reason why Hammurabi connected himself back to those Amorite kings. Now, a couple of quick notes on Solomon. Traditionally, there's over a thousand psalms attributed to him. Uh, psalm 72 specifically is attributed to him. There's a pseudepigraphal um, book that's out there uh, called Psalms of Solomon, probably not actually written to him written by him but attributed to him mm -hmm. and this this has led to some interesting speculations that when Saul was marrying all of these women 
that he was actually marrying these Solomon. Solomon, yes, sorry. Too many S's. Uh, he was marrying these women who were trained to be temple musicians. That he was these liar girls that had been traded around and had been mentioned in Isaiah that he was bringing them in. And so it was less of a marriage and more of assembling the band. And so, you know, but now he's got these women who have these skills, but where do they practice their skills? They need a place to be able to do that. So building a temple would be significant for them because that's part of their foundational identity. So this could explain why there are so many temples that he built on behalf of his wives. Mm -hmm. And it also might be a cautionary tale about dating a musician. I don't know. So, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> I mean, I guess it just goes to show you that, you know, people sleeping with the band members is a longstanding tradition. I, is that? <laughs> yeah, now it's a terrible joke. It's, but it's true. I mean, there, there, that's, you cannot watch TV, a movie, read a book, or, you know, know anybody who plays a musical instrument and, and not realize this is true. Um, but, yeah, th those are ways that these are connected. And another way that the, the Davidic and Solom uh, Solomon connection with the um, ancient, Near ancient Near Eastern cultures is displayed is that these songs are deemed prophetic. And at least they had the potential to be prophetic. And the idea that as somebody was singing the song that God would move and then God would speak through this person who is playing this instrument and singing the song. If you, if you go to just Psalm 108, uh, it's designated as a Psalm of David. And it begins with the declaration from David. He says, I will sing and make melody with all my being. I will give thanks. I will sing. So he, he's, making it very clear. David is the one performing the action. But then in verse seven, the, the language just abruptly changes and it's God speaking through David. And we, we know that Psalms are prophetic because, you know, Jesus quotes the Psalms 11 times whenever he's teaching and, and showing us how they can be used prophetically. So we also have first Chronicles 25, one through five, where David's musicians are talked about. And they were appointed to prophesy, not just to play music, but specifically for the purpose of prophesying. Mm -hmm. And one entire family in that list is set apart even further, and they are called seers. And they have the ability to see into that spiritual world. And that's the same title that we've been talking about that has been used of Samuel throughout that book. Yeah. But, um, you know, I just... you. You cannot ignore the fact that this this is accepted practice. Uh, David serves as a Kenor healer, a liar healer for Saul. The, and this is very much in the um, in the keeping of Usamagal, Assum, Usumgal, sorry, Usumgal Kamala, uh, Kalama. You got to love these ancient names. Um, remember Sumagal's duties were to soothe the spirit, soothe the heart, dry the weeping eye, and remove mourning from the heart. And so this is exactly what he does for Saul, what David does for Saul. And I think it's arguable that David is still doing it for many people still today. So that's a testament to the significance of what David accomplished with his lyre. Yeah. And... And there's what's really interesting in that is 
in his interactions with Saul, David really is proven to be superior to Saul. Anyone familiar with the contributions uh, or the conventions of that day would know that David surpassed Saul as a king and spiritual leader, leader because he was able to play the liar. And this may have been what tipped Saul off to say, he's the one. He's the one I'm going to have to watch out for. He's the one that I need to be careful of. And, you know, remember Shulgi, the king of Ur, when he boasted of his musical uh, abilities, that his diviner looked at him like an idiot. Uh, you know, the king was supposed to be the one who was the best at worship. Mm. And this is one of the, it's very interesting. This is one of the few ways that Saul is actually different from kings from other nations. but David is like a king from another nation. So I think that's a really, really unique flip there that you don't expect. Yeah. Now, Franklin, he, he um, makes the suggestion that David is not a king who plays a liar, but David is a king because he can play the liar. And that, the idea that the king who represents a god should have an intimate enough relationship that a God should be able to speak through him. Mm-hmm. Again, we, we're seeing this ancient Near Eastern culture. We're seeing this in Israel. And that's significant. This is evidence of why David is such a great king. So when Saul dies, David makes a public lament for the fallen king. So now we're back to Hammurabi and we, his lament over the, the Amorite kings that he had conquered. And we have that connection once again. But that remember, that wasn't just a lament. It was that connection and formal claim that says, I, here I am. I'm a new king. I'm returning music to the country. I'm returning music to the kingdom. This is what makes me worthy to be a king. And so David does that. And he does so well that the rabbis actually claim that there's an eternal feast where David is sitting opposite from God leading choirs of angels playing on his lyre. And this is, you know, David's lyre is retained still in worship. It, it was not something that, oh, that's pagan. We can't have anything to do with that. It, it becomes a useful tool. Yeah, well, and I, th- I think that's kind of interesting. Um, the, the, the king would brag that he's returned music to the country, and that's why people should appreciate him. Uh, mm-hmm. Because you almost kind of have that same kind of sentiment echoed in that, what I, and I don't know if this is actually, but it's constantly attributed to Churchill when they talked about cutting arts funding. Mm-hmm. And he said, well if, well, if we do that, what are we even fighting for? And yeah. so I, I, I kind of, to me, I, I kind of see a parallel to that same kind of attitude that these are things worth investing in in your country and mm-hmm. your, your nation. So, well, and to, to think that God actually created a spot within his covenant community that 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 songs and and using instruments and and singing were going to be such a fundamental part of of drawing near to him uh it's it's pretty incredible and you know it would be real easy to, to look at this and go oh okay they're they're just being like other nations they're just doing what they know to do but there are some distinctions in the way israel you know, practice this versus how other nations practice this. Because in Israel, David's lyre it, it is not a magical thing. It, it, it's not an extension of God. If anything, it's an extension of David. 
And he's yeah. the one, you know, David offers himself to God in this act. And he engages with God, not because the, that God is present in this liar that David has control over, but that by approaching God in praise and in worship, that God would draw near. And, you know, one of the things that we find it, with the Ugaritic myth, myths is that a knot very clearly in one of the songs makes it uh, makes this warning that musicians should not think higher of themselves than what they are, that you know they are nothing because it's not them who plays where David is remembered as a skilled musician. His ability is never denounced. It's never downplayed. And, and we saw that in um, even in the passage we just went over where what's Paul, what's Saul looking for? Saul's looking for someone who's skilled in playing, and that's exactly how he's described. It, it is that invitation that David offers that not just, you know, for Saul to engage in worship, but offers for God to say, hey, come into this presence. And the Bible always gives full credit to the person who is pursuing God and is attempting to open that door. And, you know, that's, that's what makes all the comparisons between the biblical text and ancient Near Eastern texts so unique and so special is because humans are either an afterthought, they're servants to do the dirty work that the, the gods don't want to do, or they, they're, they're just a bothersome trial that, that mm -hmm. the gods want to get rid of, where within the scripture, humans are invited to participate. They're invi invited to be a part of God's plans. And when they are, then God elevates the person, not the liar. Matter of fact, here's evidence. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so glad there's that mistranslation of the harp. The evidence that the instrument is not the significant thing. Otherwise, we would all know that it's a liar and not a harp. If the emphasis had been put on that, then we would have never got the name wrong. But because the significance and the emphasis is put on David, then this is why we could forget what he was playing. And it doesn't really matter what the instrument is. The, the fact that David was skillful and disciplined enough to learn it and was willing to participate in this event, that's what makes it important. And, you know, that, that's the thing I think we need to take away from this uh, as Christians is that it is about the individual. And it's about the individual who's willing to work to do any kind of act of worship with skill and with excellence. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's an important attribute that I think overall, those of us in church have often forgotten. So that's, that was kind of the background information I, I, I wanted to offer because it was, I, I just, it's fascinating that, mm -hmm. you know, we see, we see a deliberate counterfeit in the other religions that could have actually robbed us. And I, it has robbed some parts of Christianity of this great gift of music. Yeah. So, but that's that. Yeah, Do we I, have time to jump into some of the paddle store stuff? Um, oh, go ahead. Yeah. You I, something I, to say we, about David? We, we've got, well, I was just, I was just had some, I was just kind of basically going to kind of say, yeah, that's, that's some interesting stuff. There's a lot of background here that because we're not in the culture, we don't look at it the same way. And so I, I like that. 
say we got maybe about 10 minutes. I don't know how much uh, stuff okay, we got so from the paddle store, I, I, but I may have to divide this up a little bit, but um, I, I figured we had a little bit more time than what my counter is showing. So um, because this was such a weird passage about David and King Saul and that evil spirit, and, you know, and I, I asked people to, to kind of share with me uh, what aspects they would like me to address. And I chose four suggestions. Um, I didn't choose all of them because I think either everybody else's questions were answered within the context of our previous discussion or they're going to be answered in here. So uh, if I didn't get your question, I still love you and you aren't any less important and we'll probably get to you sometime later. So, uh, but Josh, uh, I'm not going to give last names because I don't know if they want them out there, but Josh actually brought up um, messianic promise and exorcism. Now, if you, paid real close attention to us going through that story I never used the word exorcism um, mm -hmm. because this sorry uh, you didn't see that I've got a fly buzzing around me uh, so why bring it up now <laughs> that's the reason I'm bringing the reason I bring it up now is that this passage has often been cited as the first exorcism recorded in the Bible uh, there's a problem for that. It 100% does not meet the criteria for an exorcism. It just does not. Uh, okay. The number one issue is it's not a demon. And so if it's not a demon, you have difficulty performing an exorcism. Right. Uh, we're told this is a spirit from God. Um, as Carmen and Dr. Vance noted, the word shadim or shed is, is not there. That would be the Hebrew for demon. Um, exorcisms are never explained in the Old Testament. Uh, we just, if we're relying on the Protestant canon, then it's just not there. However, if we broaden our source to include the Apocrypha, which is found in most Roman Bibles, and we have the book of Tobit, then we do have an exorcism. And there, there's this um, lengthy discussion and description on rituals that are used to expel demons. And that's spelled T-O-B-I-T. Uh, you can find it online. You can read it. Um, you can buy copies of it on Amazon. I'm not going to go into it. But if we explore, expand our material, our source material further, Josephus gives us several formulas and rituals practiced by the Jews to expel demons. And we also find in the Dead Sea Scrolls um, several incantations for exorcisms. The, the Jews were just well known for their ability to perform exorcisms. And this was before the time of Christ and even after, mm -hmm. actually. Uh, matter of fact, Origen says that the Jews have a special, quote, special talent for it. And they were so respected that we have Greek writings that record Egyptian exorcisms that appeal to quote, the God of the Hebrews, Jesus. So um, exorcisms were very much a part of the fabric of the culture, even if we don't have any Old Testament references to them. And so despite the fact that this episode uh, with Saul is not about an exorcism, the, the whole practice... Um, of exorcism is often linked to this. And this goes back to traditional sources. We cannot avoid that because, you know, you hear evil spirit, you, you, your, your reflex almost is, oh, it's got to be a demon. 
And right. I, I think we covered why that's not possible. The second reason why this can't be an exorcism is an exorcism involves prayer, incantations, oath, just other ritual ways of trying to gain mastery over the demonic forces. Mm. Now, if you read Jesus' account of, of when he confronts demons, he doesn't do any special prayers. He doesn't use any special words or formula. There's no incantation. He just commands the demons to leave and, and they have to obey. So in some ways, it's kind of fitting that Saul and David's situation be confused with an exorcism because Jesus' experience is often confused for an exorcism. And that's the thing. What Jesus did was so scandalous because it's not that he cast out a demon. Everybody was doing that. Okay, maybe not everybody, but lots of people were doing that. It was because mm -hmm. he didn't follow the proper protocols. And yeah. by not following the proper protocols, he's declaring more authority than any human being has right to. So this is kind of where the connection starts to fall in. But then also in Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find a list of David's writing, and it claims that David wrote four psalms, psalms for, specifically for the purpose of exorcism. Uh, that's, you'll find that uh, reference in Psalm Scroll 11Q5, for those of you who want to look it up. Psalms 91 is one of the psalms that is believed to be written for this purpose. Uh, it's uh, referred to as the Psalm of the Stricken or Song, of the, song for the Demons. And it's interesting that this uh, psalm scroll also notes that David composed all these through prophecy, which, again, we've talked about David being a prophet. Now, Dr. Heiser spends an entire Naked Bible uh, episode breaking all of that down, so I'm not going to mm -hmm. rehash all of that material. Yeah, we, uh, we should he, put a link there. And also, um, he does have, there's another episode, I don't know if it's a whole episode or if it's just in a q and I'll have to do some googling mm -hmm. and try to find it but he does actually address the uh the casting out of demons as part of the messianic profile that's yeah this is that's uh, uh episode 87 so okay uh, okay yeah so you already you, looked that one up huh <laughs> yeah i did i did and, and it's great and uh, but and so i think if you're really interested in it then by all means um uh, check it out. So I'm the only thing I really want to um really want to point out from that is that in that he does talk about is that in second temple literature um Solomon is presented as having extraordinary power over demons. I mean so much to the point that it's um there's a story about how he enslaves demons to actually build the first temple. So this is the reason why that temple is so grand and so awe-inspiring because he had all the skill of these these spiritual forces that that had you know great power. And uh, again, this is a tradition. This is not part of scripture. This is outside of that. Um, but this kind of informs your belief. And uh, the idea that somebody would have such authority over demons becomes part of the messianic hope. And so this is the reason why when Jesus confronts uh, demons in the New Testament, one of the titles we frequently find used is son of David. So Solomon being the son of David. And we also have, you know, Aramaic bowls with the um, Aramaic incantation bowls, actually, 
referring to Solomon specifically as the son of David. So if you're expecting the son of David, he has to appear with authority over the demonic. And so every time Jesus approaches someone with a demon and he deals with them head on, he's also declaring his identity as the Messiah. And so I want to use one quick thing, one other quick uh, interesting story here before we wrap up, because I know we're going to be pushing out of time. But I found this paper by Raymond Licht, Licht, sorry, Licht, I'm sure it's German. Um, it's called Types and Patterns of Ancient Jewish and Christian Exorcism. This was in the Jewish Studies Quarterly from 2006. And he notes that exorcism, now this is part Heiser doesn't cover, exorcism in Hebrew and Greek is a legal term. It's not a religious term. <laughs> and it's, right? He immediately had my attention. So it's used in court procedures where the accused is bound by an oath. Now, we find that practice in the Torah where somebody who is accused of something, but there's not great, a great amount of proof, they're bound by an oath. We find this with the woman who may have been unfaithful, that they're trying to uncover the truth and she has to drink the water. Um, and, and the practice really can be traced even further back than that. And we also see how this phrase is, is used, is demonstrated at Jesus' trial. The uh, high priest, he says, I exercise you by the living God that you tell us whether you're, you are the Christ, the son of God. So we see it being used in that legal context, even within scripture. But Mark does something really interesting. Okay? This, is, this just blew me away because I, I love it when God has a sense of humor. And yeah. this, is, this is a great story. So everybody knows the story of Legion. We got the guy in the grave. He's cutting himself, breaking the chains. Um, he's running wild. And, you know, Jesus casts the demon out and he, the, they go into the pigs. So when Jesus is approaching the demon protest and he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Basically, what obligation do we share? You know, what, what authority do you have over me? Uh, that, that's what he's asking. But then he continues. This is a demon speaking. I exercise you by God. Do not torment me. So the demon is saying these words. The demon is using the ritual language of exorcism and appealing to God in order to avoid being cast out. Now, that's insane. That this is what's going on, that the demon is trying to exercise Jesus. And, but then Mark takes it further, because in these Jewish exorcism, once you bound something with an oath, then you would try to get the name of the demon. So, you know, this is where the modern day practice comes from that you see in deliverance ministries. We won't go into that. But Jesus flips the script because he doesn't give the demon his name. Instead, he turns around without any language of an exorcism ritual or oath binding or anything, and he demands the demon's name, and the demon has to give it up. And so the language of exorcism does get flipped. And the fact that, that Jesus cannot be bound by this oath that a, an, a demon is trying to impose on him actually demonstrates that demon, that, sorry, uh, that Jesus is superior to any demonic forces. Yeah. And when you, when you carry that forward into the, the trial before the Sanhedrin, we also have him being greater than any earthly forces. And 
it's just a great, great picture of how Jesus' authority supersedes anything that we've ever known. And it, it's, it's brilliant. And so, um, I, you know, I couldn't get out of here without at least sharing that. So we've got three more things from the paddle store that uh, we can, that we'll discuss on a future episode. But yeah, uh, yeah I, these are the yeah. kinds of things those folks bring up in there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really cool. Um, a lot of interesting information. And I'm going to be, I want to be doing a lot of thinking between now and the next episode. So yeah, uh, so lots of stuff I, I hadn't considered and, and lots of uh, trails we can go on. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think that's a good place to break. Um, and we will see everybody next week if you want to... Uh, have your question featured. You don't even have to be necessarily in the paddle store. Feel free to just send right. us a DM or a direct message. We'll see what we can uh, find for you. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. Just being in the paddle store gives you a place to further discuss it and kind of interact well, um, more more freely. Um, and we got some great experts in there who are happy to weigh in too. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. yeah, it's yeah. a good balanced discussion. But yeah, and if you do want to, uh, to reach out to us, hit us up at Raven Creek SC on all the social media and ravencreeksc.com is our webpage. You can find us there um, and send us email directly if you like. Um, and other than that, I think that kind of wraps us for this week and we'll see you next time and have a great week. Sounds good. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.